come, Lord Jesus. No longer tarry. We long for the day when you will return, when you will vindicate your great name and you will have your day, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and Lord, when every vestige of wandering sin in us is gone. We long to see your face. We long to be in your presence. We long to see all of your promises fulfilled. In the meantime, O oh God, give us faithfulness that comes from you, empowered by your spirit, informed by your word, for your glory. Let us not be hardened by sin, deceived by sin, squeezed into the things around us, but let us be wholly devoted to you, and would you sustain us for your purposes, for your glory, and for our good, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We'll be continuing our study of this letter of Paul to the churches in Rome. This morning's message is entitled, Be Careful What You Ask For. Be Careful What You Wish For. You think about the kid who says, I wish I never had to clean my room again the day before his house burns down. Or maybe you think about the nation who says, we don't want to submit to Yahweh. We want the gods of the Babylonians. We want the gods of the Assyrians. We want the, the idols of the land we're going into. We don't want Yahweh, the one true God who rescued us out of Egyptian slavery. God's response to that nation was, you want Assyrian idolatry? I'll give you Assyrian idolatry. You want Babylonian idolatry? I'll give you over to Babylonian idolatry. It's a terrifying thing to want something that is opposed to your own good and then to receive it as a judgment from God. As we look this morning at Israel... And the reasons behind the present state of Israel's unbelief. You need to be thinking about your own heart this morning. You need to be asking yourself, am I committed in my affections to things that take me away from God? And might God actually give them to me? What a terrifying thing to be given what you long for, if what you long for is not God himself. That is the explanation in this text behind Israel's present unbelief. It is the judicial hardening of God. And that's what we find in our text this morning. Let's read together Romans eleven seven through 10. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This is a 
terrifying set of verses. Because God has given to Israel what Israel has longed for. Israel has turned her back on her God, rejected her Messiah, and God has given her over to rejection of Messiah. Paul begins this section in verse 7 by asking, what then? A two-word question. If we're to fill out the meaning of this question, it is probably something like this. If only a faithful remnant of Israel exists, what about the rest? What about the majority? Why don't they believe? What is it that has happened to them? Why is there merely a remnant? And there are three parties involved in verse 7. Paul says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You have Israel, you have the chosen, and you have the rest. Who are these three parties? Israel in verse 7 is Israel as a national identity. And the other two parties in this are a subset of Israel as a national identity. Those who were chosen in the New American Standard is a translation literally of the one Greek word, the election. The election. That is, believers who are Israelites, spiritual Israel, the remnant by grace from among Israel. And then the rest are the rest of ethnic Israelites, those who do not believe, those who have rejected Messiah and are cut off for unbelief. Israel, in verse 7, is said to be seeking, present tense, and did not obtain. What is it they were seeking? What is it they are seeking in an ongoing, present way in Paul's day? Well, Romans 3.11 is clear. They, They weren't seeking God, right? No one seeks after God. There is no one who understands, none who seeks after him. What is it that Israel was pursuing? What is it that Israel is seeking if they weren't seeking after God himself? Well, Romans has already told us. Romans 9.31, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, never arrived at it. There they are, seeking and not obtaining. They're on the hamster wheel of self-atonement. They're on the hamster wheel of human religion. They're on the endless, vain attempt to merit righteous standing by what you do. It's a futile effort. Romans 10, 1 to 4, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, says Paul, is for their salvation. They're not saved. Paul says, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, not knowing about God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own. There, that is what they're seeking. Israel is seeking to establish their own righteousness. And so they did not subject themselves to the free offer of the gift of righteousness that comes through the gospel. They were not seeking God himself. They were seeking self-righteousness. A right standing they thought they could have with God while missing God entirely by refusing his free gift of unearned righteousness through faith in Christ. And Paul says in verse 7, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the election obtained it. And he doesn't doesn't call them the elect. If Paul had said the elect or the chosen, it would emphasize the individual recipients of God's grace. Here he makes it abstract. He says the election obtained it. And by doing so, he's emphasizing the means by which 
people are saved. It is grace. He's emphasizing grace here. Faith in a right standing produces a, a gift of righteousness. And this is all of grace. You see, the only difference between the election in verse 7 and the rest in verse 7 is grace. And friends, the only difference between you, if you're a believer, and an unbeliever next door is grace. And nothing in you could account for the difference between who you were and who you are or the difference between you and people who do not yet know Christ. Only grace. Paul calling them the election emphasizes and highlights this. Go back to verse 5. We see there that it is not by their choice, nor by their works, nor by their lineage, but solely because God was pleased to rescue them. Romans 11.5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, that's a remnant of believing Israelites, according to God's gracious choice. It is the grace of election that sets apart a saved remnant from the rest. Solely by God's grace, solely because God was pleased to rescue them from their spiritual deadness, their slavery to sin, their hardness of heart, and their unbelief. We saw that in dramatic fashion in Paul's own life. Paul was not seeking God. Paul was not seeking atonement through Christ. He wasn't looking for Jesus. And Jesus interrupted his rebellious trek. A remnant who believes, whether it be one Elijah, one Apostle Paul, or thousands in one day in Jerusalem, or millions and millions of believers through history, it is always a miraculous product of God's undeserved grace. And look again at verse 6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You understand these two principles are mutually exclusive. You can't say that salvation comes partly by grace and partly by works. Partly by God's kindness and partly by my merit. If you do that, it is no longer grace at all. If it is to be grace, it is all or nothing grace. One molecule of human merit smuggled into the equation renders grace null and void. What has caused a remnant to believe? God's Gracious choice. That's it. Israel as a national identity missed it. The election obtained it. And the rest, verse 7, the unbelieving majority of Israel were hardened. They were hardened. And we've seen this idea of hardening before. Turn back to chapter 9 of Romans. In the same section, Romans 9.18 Paul says, then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And he uses Pharaoh as an example of the judicial hardening of God, where Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do, which was to rebel against God, and God hardened him in that choice. God hardened his rebellion. And the word for hardening here in, verse, in chapter 11 is different than the word in chapter 9. Perhaps a more severe word. The hardening in chapter 9 is the word for sclerosis. It is the hardening of soft tissue. The word for hardening here in chapter 11 is porosis. It is the...
element of a callus, a calcified, hardened material. It's, it's what is produced when bones are fractured and they refuse. That is, new, hardened material grows in order to solidify what had been broken. Hardened protrusions that fuse together broken things. It is to petrify. And as we will see, this is a hardening as a metaphor that's used to describe the the covering over of eyes and of ears so that someone can't see and someone can't hear. It really renders one insensitive to spiritual things. And notice in verse 7 that the rest were hardened. That is a passive verb. This is one of these passive verbs we refer to as a divine passive The actor, the one doing the action, is not stated, but there's no mistaking that the actor is God himself. Who are these people hardened by? This is judicial hardening. This is, in fact, the judgment of God against Israel as a nation for her unbelief. And this judicial hardening is seen in three features. That'll be the outline for this morning. Three features of God's hardening of Israel. The first feature of God's judicial hardening of the nation of Israel is found in verse 8, and it is dulled spiritual senses. Look what Paul writes. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And if we were wondering, are we sure that that's a divine passive in verse 7, that God really is the actor behind this hardening? Paul makes it clear in verse 8. God gave them. God gave them a spirit of stupor, and that spirit of stupor is manifested in insensitivity to spiritual things, blindness and deafness. And Paul here combines Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4. Isaiah 29.10 reads this way, For Yahweh has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. What a remarkable statement of judgment from God in Isaiah 29, where God has shut off the spigot of his kind revelation through prophets to Israel. You don't want to listen to the prophets? We're going to turn them off. And God says, he has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. And Paul combines the wording of Isaiah 29.10 with the wording of Deuteronomy 29.4. To this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And what Moses says negatively in Deuteronomy 29, Paul says positively, God has given you positively eyes to not see and ears to not hear down to this very day. Paul says that God gave these things. And and it begins with this idea of a spirit of stupor. In Isaiah 29, the New American Standard translates it as a deep sleep. But this is often used of of God giving a a state of stupor, like Genesis 2.21. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, Adam, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, right? The first surgery, the first anesthesia. (laughs) Adam was insensitive in terms of God opening his side and removing a rib. 1 Samuel 26, 12, 
we read, David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Saul and his bodyguards, his bodyguards not doing a very good job, because David could sneak in and take personal items from Saul himself. Why? Because God had caused, supernaturally, this deep sleep to fall upon them. Same word. It is to be insensible. It's used in Proverbs 19 of the stupor that comes about by laziness. Laziness just produces this insensibility to surroundings. But most often in the Old Testament, the word is reserved for things caused by God. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates Isaiah 29.10 as stupefaction. That is a state of not being able to think satisfactorily because of a complete bewilderment and stupor. And this brought about by God. And the spirit of stupor shows up in a total lack of spiritual perception. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not. And Paul says this is the state of Israel down to this present day. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John just to get an illustration of what it was like for Israel to be spiritually blind, to actually be darkness, and to miss the light when it came. We'll start in John chapter 1. When I was in Nashville, uh, there was a Wendy's down the corner from our house, down at Nipper's Corner. And at the Wendy's, they had a posted sign in Braille that gave instructions for sight-impaired people to be able to navigate the menu. But that Braille sign was behind plexiglass. (laughs) They fulfilled the spirit of the law, and they did not help the people that the sign was supposed to help. Israel was blind... And had an inability to fathom her own blindness. I want you to see this in the Gospel of John. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word here? This is Jesus. We know that from verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You think about the fact that the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who is, comes to earth. And he's going to reveal himself to his people, to his own people. He's going to come in the form of a man in the descent line and the genealogy from Israel. He is Israel's Messiah, but he's no human hero. This is the God of the universe himself. He is light and life and truth. Verse 5, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Staggering. How dark does dark have to be to not recognize light? You put one candle in a dark room. Oh, there's light. But what kind of an overwhelming darkness is unaware that light is in the room? Listen to John 3, 19 to 21. This is Jesus' indictment against his own people. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. 
But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There is a darkness that pervades the entire world and this darkness was present in Israel which was to be the bearer of the light and truth of God to a watching world. And they missed the light when it came. Turn to John 8. John 7 and John 8 go together. I think there's a, a really strong case to be made that uh, John 7.52 and John 8.12 go together. The insertion of the story there about the, the uh, woman caught in adultery doesn't belong there. And this is all one story in John 7. Jesus is teaching at the feast, really the festival of lights. And these were feasts held at night after the sun had gone down. And the whole temple complex blazed with these giant fires that made near daylight in the temple complex. And in this context, Jesus says, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look down at verse 43. Jesus says to them, why do you not understand what I am saying? Now we're turning from the concept of blindness in the face of the glorious light of Jesus Christ to deafness. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. A radical inability to hear. To hear with understanding. And then he says down in verse 47, He who is of God hears the words of God. By the way, Jesus is equating his own words with God's words. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And Jesus says in this very conversation with these people, they think God is their father and Satan is their father. This, of course, did not make the religious leadership of Israel happy. And the truth is provocative and the truth is threatening to people who are protecting their own turf of self-righteousness and protecting their own positions of power and protecting pride Right? Truth is an indictment of those things, and truth is a threat to those things. The light has come into the darkness, and the darkness is threatened by the light. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man to demonstrate to them that physical blindness can be overcome by his supernatural power, and to turn the irony that this physically blind man, whom they assume is cursed by God, reveals that they are spiritually blind, and they are the ones actually cursed by God, in fulfillment of the very things Paul is bringing up about Israel right here. That God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not. And that is the state of Israel, God's privileged people in Paul's day. Look at John chapter 12. Verse 35. Jesus has predicted his own death. And he says to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. 
He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. What a staggering thing. It's like the wilderness generation. Though God had performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. For this reason, listen, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they could not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. You understand, there is a judgment against unbelief that produces further unbelief. There is a judgment against willful spiritual blindness that produces more spiritual blindness. What a tragic reality. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's the him in John 12, 35? Jesus Who did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6 and speak of his glory? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who did Isaiah see? Pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Isaiah 6 throne room scene becomes Isaiah's commission. And Isaiah goes from that scene in Isaiah 6 where The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord holy and lifted up. The the seraphim flapping their wings, shaking the foundations of the temple. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a dead man. I have seen Yahweh. And then what does Yahweh say? Who will go for us? Who can I send? Here I am, send me, says Isaiah. And then the message Isaiah is given to, to speak is this very prophetic word about blind eyes and deaf ears as a judgment from God against their unbelief. Give me more darkness, said the blind man. Give me stone silence, said the fool. And this is the present state of Israel down to this very day. The wording here at the end of verse 8, down to this very day, anticipates the future that Paul will lead us to in chapter 11. It's an acknowledgement that this is the present state of affairs. It's not the last word. Both contexts that Paul quotes here, Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, lead to hope. They point to future hope, a time after this hardening judgment, when God will open blind eyes, when he will grant spiritual hearing, and he will soften hard hearts. He will take out that calcified, petrified heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart of flesh. He will do those things for national Israel. But the present state of affairs is an explanation why there is merely a remnant in belief. In fact, the, Deuter- the Deuteronomy 29 context leads right into Deuteronomy 30, chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 6, which is the promise of a circumcised heart. Remember, God had obligated the people of Israel to circumcise their own hearts in Deuteronomy 10. A very reasonable request. 
He says there in Deuteronomy 10, the heavens worship me. Everything's obedient to me. It's appropriate that you should be obedient to me. So circumcise your hearts. It's an impossible command, but it's a reasonable request. And it is fulfilled by God himself in Deuteronomy 30 when he says, I will circumcise their hearts. That day's coming. But for now, and in Paul's day, Israel was under judicial hardening. The second feature of that judicial hardening is found in verse 9. And it is religion without relationship. Religion without relationship. Turn back to Romans 11. And let's look at verse 9. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. This is a quotation from Psalm 69. And and by table here, I believe Paul has in mind a a table of provision and privilege. A probable reference to the rich bounty of God's provision to Israel as a nation. And he's quoting David in Psalm 69. And David there is praying judgment against his enemies. And Psalm 69 is taken up in the New Testament perhaps 17 times And some of those in some really significant ways, often regarding the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the work of Christ. The New Testament picks up the language of Psalm 69 again and again and again to describe the ministry of Messiah. In his sufferings, as he's surrounded by his enemies, Jesus takes up the language of David as he was surrounded by his enemies in Psalm 69. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to give you just a few highlights. Language and vocabulary that will be familiar because we're familiar with the New Testament. They'll be familiar with you, to you if you are familiar with Psalm 69. But listen to verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus quotes this text. In verse 21, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is quoted in all four gospels in the scene at the cross where vinegar and gall is lifted up to Jesus to quench thirst. Verse 26, they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten and they tell of the pain of those whom you've wounded. Jesus Christ was the one smitten of God and mocked by the Jews. And we get our quote in Romans 11 from verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 69. May their table before them become a snare and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. And we don't know the exact context or the exact scene that David is referring to when he's surrounded by his enemies. When he's praying to God against his enemies. But he makes appeal to God that God would be vindicated, that God's purposes would be vindicated, that God's purposes for his anointed king and for the nation of Israel would be vindicated against the enemies who are opposed to God's good purposes for Israel. What's so staggering is David's enemies apparently had a table, a place to eat, to sit in comfort, to enjoy bountiful provision. And David prays that the very things they enjoy in safety and happiness would become a trap for them. 
Paul takes up this language from Psalm 69 to speak of the enemies of the gospel, the Jews who had rejected Messiah. And if you think about the table of provision and privilege that God had provided for them, his law, his covenants, the prophets, the Sabbath, all of these were gifts of God's grace to Israel, vehicles for him to convey his self-disclosure and his kind and wonderful regulation of his people. And the Jews had perverted these by going through religious motions and missing the God that they were ostensibly worshiping. These very provisions became the means by which the Jews sought to establish their own righteousness and to exclude others. Think about how this tendency of the Jews to exclude Gentiles, a xenophobic self-centeredness, even made its way into the early church. Remember, Greek widows were not being treated equitably compared to Jewish widows in Acts 6, and so the proto-deacon leadership had to be raised up to solve the problem. You know that everywhere that Paul went, he was hounded by the Judaizers who sought to put Gentiles under Jewish law if they were to have anything to do. The, the regular desire to even separate from Gentile believers among Jewish believers. Peter and Barnabas, guilty of these things. Demonstrates how difficult it was for Jews in the first century to embrace Gentiles in this plan that God is doing called the church. So if it was hard for people who loved the gospel to be reconciled across racial grounds, how hard would it have been for unbelieving Jews to think about the nations around them with love and compassion? Really, really difficult. In fact, the Jews had taken up the language of Psalm 69 in first century Jewish literature as imprecatory prayers against Gentiles, against Roman oppression, against their enemies. And here, what does Paul do? The, the fact that Psalm 69 is used so heavily in the New Testament to refer to the, the sufferings of Christ means that Paul is tying the sufferings of David and imprecatory prayers against David's enemies with Jesus' own sufferings against his enemies, which were the Jews that crucified him, and now have become the enemies of the gospel itself and become the content of the language that Paul uses to speak judgment against unbelieving Israel. Israel used Psalm 69 as a prayer against their enemies. And here, God, through the Apostle Paul, is levying those same words against the enemies of the gospel in Israel. What a tragic turn of events. Israel has become the enemy of her own Messiah. And Paul uses these very words to describe Israel as the enemy who will experience God's judgment. Why was Israel to be judged? Because they had followed a form of religion but had denied its power. They had the external trappings of devotion to God, but they had missed God himself. They possessed and read and memorized and taught and taught and taught the word of God, but they did not know or love the God of the word. The same context that Paul quotes in Isaiah um, in 11.8 has this to say. 
Isaiah 29, 13. Then Yahweh said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Do you understand what they had? They had religion without a true relationship to God by faith. Going through all of the motions, possessing all of the trappings, and missing the whole heart. It's helpful to reflect on Isaiah's prophecy, on Isaiah's description of Israel's condition. I take you back to Isaiah 1. And listen to verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's talking to Israel. And he's using bad words, bad names to describe Israel herself. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams, the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the, bull, in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Now, these were offerings and sacrifices that pleased the Lord. They were things that God commanded, prescribed for his people. But because God's people were going through the motions and coming to him without loving him, he despised them. They became a a trap for them, a snare. Listen to Isaiah 57, 11 to 13. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and you did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time, so you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them all away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. Judgment against the rebels, a promise to the remnant. Listen to Isaiah 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not so short that it cannot save. His ears are not so dull that he cannot hear. And the implicit question is, why are our prayers not being answered? It's not that God's powerless and it's not that God is deaf. It's that your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is a judgment against Israel for unbelief. They were judged for the emptiness of their worship of God. And what was the punishment? More emptiness. A giving over to their idolatries. That table that was God's provision and their privilege becomes a trap and a snare and a a stumbling block, literally a scandal to them. And Paul, in these few verses, quotes from the law, the writings, and the prophets. That's a way to say the whole Old Testament gives testimony against Israel. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus, the Messiah, whom they rejected. And the crucified Messiah is the only hope of sinners. And you know the Jews were scandalized by the idea of a crucified Messiah. Couldn't stand such an idea. And instead, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They grab the anchor tight, thinking it's their life vest. And as it goes deeper and deeper into the abyss, they grip it tighter and tighter and tighter. If I hold on tighter, maybe it will save me. 
They rejected the great bounty of God's kindness. And friends, if we do this, we may get what we ask for. There's a third feature of this judicial hardening of God against Israel. It is the burden of self-righteousness. Look at verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. In the first half of verse 10, Paul revisits the idea of dimness of eyes, the judicial hardening about spiritual sensitivity. And I think it's probably, probably what led him to quote here, and this is the whole idea of blindness brings him back to another passage. And this prophecy, this request, uh, is the next verse in uh, Psalm 69, David's request that his enemies would have their backs bent in an enduring fashion. Uh, the New American Standard says, bend their backs forever. Uh, it quite literally is, bend their backs through all. That is, in an enduring way. Let their backs continually be bent. And I believe this is a reference to the burden of carrying the impossible burden of self-righteousness. And the hypocrisy of burdening others with this same impossible task. Stooped over saying, look what I can carry. And then piling burdens on everybody else demanding they do the same. That was Israel's religion in the time of Christ. Acts 15.10, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In Matthew 23, and Jesus woes against the Pharisees. He, He levies this same charge. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Think about that. When the religious national leadership gives you all the rules and regulations that if you keep these, then you get to go to heaven. Be like us. And Jesus says, you're not going to heaven. And nobody who follows your ways is going to heaven. You are keeping people out. Verse 23 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you want to establish your own righteousness, Israel? In the burdensome hamster wheel of empty pursuit, you seek but never obtain You grip the anchor tighter and it only takes you deeper. To reject grace and cling to your own goodness, your own merit. Okay, if that's what you're asking for, you can have more of it. And Israel's unbelief is a judgment against her unbelief. Be careful what you ask for. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I want God out of my life. I don't want some God to tell me what to do. I like my slavery to sin. I like my spiritual darkness. I like my empty religion. 
Maybe I like the burden of attempting my own salvation. Listen, you keep asking for that from God and God may give you exactly what you're asking for. And that would be the worst thing you could get. To be given over to your idols. To be given over to the lies of the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. To be given over to the lies of this world culture. To believe that life is to be had in the things of this world. For God to just give you over to them and for you to find that they are empty in the end. It'd be a tragedy. Judicial hardening is a theme throughout our Bibles. We've already seen it in Romans 1 three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. To further foolishness, to further rejection, to idolatry, to immorality. God gave them over to the things they craved. In Matthew 13, Jesus changed his public ministry. It's sort of a pivotal point in the book of Matthew. Up to that point, Jesus has been speaking publicly, teaching clearly. And in Matthew 13, he begins speaking in parables. The reason for that is Matthew 12. There, the religious leadership had accused Jesus of accomplishing his powerful miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, you can't talk about the Holy Spirit that way. And so now I'm not going to speak to you clearly anymore. And he begins speaking in parables. The disciples take him aside and say, Teacher, why are you speaking in parables? The people can't understand if you talk like that. And Jesus responds to them in Matthew 13, 15. To you it has been granted, given by grace, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to them, and then Jesus quotes Isaiah, that their eyes may be darkened so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. It's the judgment of God. You want to turn off the God message and God may give you what you want. Listen, God's judgment will humble. Listen to Isaiah 2.17. This is what God is committed to in his judgment of man. The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's where all of human history is headed. And God will be exalted in judgment. But God will also be exalted in salvation. And just as man will be humbled in judgment, so we are humbled in grace. Listen to Isaiah 5. So the common man will be humbled. The man of importance will be abased. The eyes of the proud will be abased. But Yahweh of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. What God is committed to in all of his divine activities from judicial hardening to saving sinners by his grace is to bring glory to his own name. And if you are not humbled by grace and God's free offer of eternal life to you in Jesus Christ, you will be humbled in judgment. Listen, there's a danger in Christian circles. There's a danger in our regular exposure to the word of God. There's a danger in coming here and and maybe having a troubled conscience salved by mere attendance. I feel better because I went to church. I checked off that box. I did what I was supposed to do. But if you sit under the word of God week after week after week and turn off conviction, 
things in your life that you know need to change. And you're not choosing to be humbled by God's grace and his kindness to you week after week after week. If you come here and sit before the Lord's table, that remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross that we do every single week, and your heart is not soft, and your ears are not open, and your eyes are not open to the truth of God's word, there is tremendous danger for you. William Newell said, hearts harden most quickly when men are trusting in their place of special privilege without fellowship with the God who gives it. It's a very real danger and a stricter judgment, frankly, to have access to God's word, to hear God's word, and to not soften your heart. My friends, judicial hardening is real. God may give you what you ask for. And if you are not asking for God himself, if he is not the one you seek, he might give you what you want. Come to him and have everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. We pray for Israel. We pray for her peace. Not a political peace. Not a national peace, first and foremost but a spiritual one, peace with you, reconciliation to you. We pray that Israel as a nation would turn to her Savior and recognize her Messiah. And God, we pray for our friends, Jew and Gentile alike, at work and our neighborhoods who do not yet know you who have up to this point stiff-armed your kindness, have not given you thanks for all the goodness you've given, and who have not yet bowed the knee to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us to plead with them, beg them to be reconciled to you. And we pray that you would do the supernatural work required to raise them from spiritual death, hardness of heart, blindness of eyes, deafness of ears and give them light and life and truth in your Son. We ask that too for anyone here this morning who does not, net, does not yet know you. Would you bring new life here even today? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.